Good morning, everyone. We have been very slowly making our way through the book of Acts. And I know the summer has been an interesting time because there's uh, been a number of interruptions in that series. But let me, um, let me just catch you up on the rationale and the trajectory. The book of Acts is about the story of earliest Christianity. And we turn to the book of Acts, which is appropriately named because it's a very action-oriented book, but to, to look at questions around the character of the early church, and especially to ask the question, what is it that gave them their power? What is it that gave them integrity? What is it that gave such strength to their witness? I mean, here they were in arguably uh, one of the less important areas of the ancient world, and yet, and yet what they had and what they held, the message that they spoke, they spoke with such fervency that it rooted itself very quickly, not just in the capital region of Jerusalem, but soon throughout the burgeoning Mediterranean world, and from there into the Greco-Roman Empire, and from there into North Africa and India, and all the way into Europe. And this happened within a very rapid space of time. What is it about the early church that allowed them to pull that off? We arrive this morning at kind of a hinge point. The first seven chapters of the book of Acts we've been working our way through all happen or all clustered in and around the area of Jerusalem and Judea, which means primarily this is a message that enfolds and incorporates the Jewish people. But like a door that, that, that pivots on a hinge, chapter 8 is the pivot point. And the energy, the effort that swings the door is the episode that we looked at last Sunday. It's, it's a tragic and, and yet a powerful moment in the life of the church. The first Christian martyr, the first believer who knowingly puts himself in the path of persecution and suffering and brings a message powerfully into the lives of people and loses his life for it. That's Stephen. That is the sort of the impetus for a wave of persecution that sees the people of God scattered from their home base. Acts chapter 8 is the beginning of the global mission of the church. Now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read a portion of that, about the first 18 verses or so from Acts chapter 8. On that day, that day again, a reference to the day that Stephen died. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, hold on to that, that's interesting. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Some godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. But those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and crippled were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, 
A man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention. And they, they exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now when the apostles back in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet fully come upon them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, <laughs> he offered them money. We're going to stop there. We'll move on a little bit in the course of the message. But let's stop there and let's pause and pray together. God, this is such a strategic moment in the life of the church and the advance of your kingdom. Help us as we eavesdrop on the events of that day long ago to find truth for our own day. Help us to find application for our own life. Help us, Lord, to to be able not just to understand, but, but to renew our trust in the mission that you have for the church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, today we get to a new part of the book of Acts, a part that will sort of sustain us for the balance of the book. The book of Acts can actually be outlined along the very paths that, that Jesus said his church would take. Remember Jesus said to the, to the disciples just before he ascended into heaven, he said, I want you to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. For seven chapters, they've been in Jerusalem and Judea. Here, pointedly, they mention the fact that, that Philip goes to Samaria, and from there on, they go out to the known world. As they went out, the church finally becomes what the church was created to be, and that's a church on mission. The church doesn't have a mission. The church is a mission. And I know that's... Now, that's language has become really very trendy over the past 20 years in the secular world as well as in the sacred. The word mission is everyone. Everyone has their own personal mission statement. Businesses have mission statements. Agencies have mission statements. People labor long and intensely trying to find just the right mission statement. But I, but I think, and, and you can correct me if you know better, but I think the word mission, in English at least, belonged first to the Christian church. So the question I want to ask you th with you this morning is this. What, what was the mission of the earliest church? And by looking at that critical phase, the launch phase of the church into mission, I want to discern with you four marks or four characteristics of the mission of the church. And you can find those outlined in your notes in the back page of the order of service. It was an organic mission. That was the first thing. It was an urban mission. 
It was an embodied mission, and we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about what that means. And it was a gospel mission. Let's go through them. First, it was an organic mission. What do I mean organic? Well, this is already kind of alluded to in the text. You take a look at those first four verses, and you see that when persecution breaks out, everyone goes except who? Except the apostles. The apostles, really, they're kind of the top leaders of the church. I don't know if they were like the clergy of the day. They're probably something even higher, kind of like bishops, even though the Bible doesn't use that word to describe them. They stay, but everyone else goes out. They're scattered. They decide to go to various places, and, and chapter 8 follows the account of Philip who goes to Samaria. That's a big deal, going to Samaria. Samaria is enemy territory, but in the scattering... They go everywhere, and they don't neglect even Samaria. And as they go out, and this is key, it says in verse 4, those who had been scattered, that's everybody, those who had been scattered preached the word. Now you and I, we see that word preach, and, and we associate that, well, kind of with what I'm doing now. Public speaking in front of an audience in an organized environment. Actually, the little word there is the word euangelion. They evangelized. They evangelized. And who did this? Everybody did this. This is a pivotal moment in the life of the church because you know what it means? It means that every single Christian believer at that moment moves from being just a ministry consumer to becoming a ministry provider. Every Christian begins to take the life-changing message of Jesus and they begin to gossip it. They begin to embody it. They begin to talk about it. They live it all the time. And they, they live it in foreign territory because they're scattered. Why do we call it an organic movement? Because this was not conceived in the boardrooms of power. It's not being carefully managed by an implementation team. This is not a hierarchical effort that was strategized from the top down. Think for a, min a minute about what a, what a movement is. We saw one recently in the news, right? The, the Arab Spring. That wasn't orchestrated in the corridors of power. That was a grassroots movement that arose from within the lives of ordinary people. A movement is something spontaneous. It's something dynamic. A movement isn't top-down. It's not command and control. It's, it's not bureaucratic organization. Whose decision was it to go to Samaria? He was Philip's. This is groundbreaking. This is the first church that exists among non-Jewish peoples, among Gentile peoples. And you don't get the sense that this was the result of some long-term strategic plan that began in Jerusalem. They didn't sit down and figure out what it is they were going to do and then figure out a strategy and map it out. This was a movement. It was, it was dynamic. And it was the byproduct of God's Spirit at work in the lives of ordinary people. One of the interesting things about the passage, as you glance through it, one of the more puzzling things as you first read it, is that after the Samaritans, those first non-Jewish believers, receive the word of God, it says in verse 14, have a look there, that when the, the apostles heard this was going on, they went down there. Until now, they were the only ones who'd stayed back home. When they heard this is happening, they go down there. So even though this is a spontaneous, dynamic movement, it's not a command and control thing. It's also not anarchy. It's not everybody doing their own thing. The apostles, they'd been trained by Jesus. They'd been, they'd been given custody of this incredible legacy, the, 
the story, the truth, the, the teachings of Jesus, this sacred body of, of knowledge. They knew what the gospel was. And they functioned in the ancient world kind of like an accreditation board. Right? So God is moving spontaneously through His people and they're going out and they're doing this and the apostles hear it's going on and they go there and they check it out. And they give it the stamp, yeah, this is it. This is exactly what Jesus was all about. And they might go somewhere and say, that's mostly it. But this little piece, uh, you've missed it or you've added it. And sometimes over here they say, that's not it. That's not it. And you need to be careful about using the name of Jesus in association with what's going on. They were like this accreditation board. One commentator says, if the apostles became a stabilizing, a verifying, a unifying element in the mission as it moved to new areas without planning or control. That's an organic movement. In the one sense it's unified, there's this truth that's at the center of it that everybody believes and they adhere to and the apostles, they're the standard bearers for that truth. But at the same time it's dynamic. It's innovative. It comes out of the grassroots a bubbling up of new energy and new ideas and new initiatives. Apparently and this is an interesting lesson, Sheldon, for, for you and I and those who, who are in leadership for the clergy and, and for the staff, Rochelle. Apparently, when the Christians were all together, even under the powerful and gifted leadership of the apostles, they'd been fairly passive. They'd simply brought their friends to hear the great preaching going on in Jerusalem. But when they're scattered when they find the courage to communicate themselves what it is that they had learned and heard, the results were, well, they're incredible. Now, maybe they were less eloquent than the apostles, I don't know, but they were more effective. That's always been the case in the life of the church. Why? Because people are 10,000 times more numerous than apostles. And because a layperson's testimony just has a much more authentic, resonant ring in the life of a listener than a well-polished, articulate speech. People look and say, they're like me. That story could be my story. So the mission of the church is not created or directed by professional missionaries. It belonged to everybody. It's organic. It's dynamic. It's grassroots. That's the first thing. Notice it says in verse 5, and this is the second characteristic, that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. It's an urban mission. Now, this isn't necessarily intuitive, because remember, Jesus spent most of his time with his disciples in kind of rural areas, in and around the Sea of Galilee. That wasn't a city. That's not an urban area. They were out on the countrysides. He gave the Sermon on the Mount, not in the town square. So this wasn't a, a de facto sort of assumption that the Christians would go into the cities. Philip, though, he goes to a city in Samaria. And from here on in, take careful note, whenever you read in the book of Acts that those early Christians are moving out into the non-Jewish world, they go intentionally to the cities. For example, in Acts chapter 16, Paul gets this, this huge, audacious vision from God. You need to go and reach out to Macedonia. 
a huge region, unexplored, untouched, untouched by the gospel. So what does he do? He chooses the biggest city in Macedonia, Philippi, and he plants a church there. Because he knows that, that if he has impact in the biggest city in Macedonia, like, like spokes going out from the hub of a wheel, that will have a ripple effect throughout the rest of the country. Why is that? Well, it was the same then as it is now. The city is the hub of the whole region, culturally and geographically. Ideas tend to start in the city, and then they move out from there into the outlying regions. People come, they, they immigrate into the city, and they live there sometimes for a time, and then they move back out again to the rest of the regions. People come and they get educated in the city, and then they move back out again. If you reach a town, you reach only the town. But if you reach a city you wind up reaching all of the towns around it. And every big city is connected not just to the regions around it, but connected to other big cities that form a sort of a nexus that goes around the world. So if Paul wanted to reach, for example, the five largest nations in North Africa, wanted to bring the gospel there, he could have spent the rest of his life doing that. He could have moved to one nation, learned the language, planted a church, spent five to ten years there, then moved to another nation, learned the language again, that sort of thing, and it would have taken the rest of his life. Or, he could have done what in fact he did. He went to Antioch, the largest, most cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic city, where there were thousands of people from every one of those other nations, all speaking the the lingua franca, the, the sort of the everyday common language that holds them together, the language of commerce and the language of the economy of the city. All you had to do was go to the city and there you begin gossiping about the gospel. He creates a multi-ethnic church. The first churches outside of Jerusalem are all multi-ethnic, multinational churches. And the gospel moves through that migration of people to all the nations. The city is the key to the nations. It always has been. And it doesn't stop in the book of Acts. The early Christian concentration on cities doesn't end at the end of the book of Acts. We know that by the time Constantine made Christianity the, the official religion of the Roman Empire, sometime around A.D. 320, around then, the Christianity was almost exclusively a cosmopolitan urban movement. There was a small majority in every one of the big cities of the Roman world that were Christian. The countryside, however, was largely pagan. Christians focused on the cities. Almost everyone living outside of the cities was still pagan. In fact, the word pagan, the way that we use it, we sort of were thinking about people who, who are rustic and, uh, and idolatrous and, and, and just, they're pre-Christian, right? The word pagan simply means a country person. The assumption was, if you were a country person, you hadn't yet had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Now listen, my family are country people. and I don't want you to walk away hearing that the gospel doesn't belong in the rural areas of the world. Sure it does. But the, re the way to reach the rural areas was to start first in the cities. And you could make a case, by the way, that those great big multi-ethnic cities of the Roman world, those cities that allow the flow of ideas and, and people and capital moving freely across boundaries, you could make a case that the world of that day is radically 
parallel to the world of our day where technology and mobility have seen the rise of these enormous, globalized, multi-ethnic cities. That the world of our day, the GTA, is more like the ancient world to which the church first went than it has been for 2,000 years. Let me read you something. This comes from Foreign Policy magazine. A few years ago they did an issue on cities. This is what they said. 21st century will not be dominated by America, don't tell them that, (laughs) or China, or Brazil, or India, but by the city. Cities rather than states are becoming the islands of governance on which the future world will be built. Time, technology, and population growth have massively accelerated the advent of these new urban eras. Already more than half the world live in cities, and that percentage is growing rapidly. Just 100 cities in the world account for 30% of the world's economy and almost all of its innovation. You need churches everywhere that people are. But the people of the world are moving to cities faster than the churches are moving there. And as the city goes, so goes the world. If you have any desire to have influence in the course of human life as it's lived in the world, especially if you're Christian, you cannot neglect the focus on the city. It was just a little over four decades ago that people with great passion and great foresight eyed a little parcel of land here on Cother Road. They eyed it knowing that around it was going to grow up because they'd seen the urban plans, a massive new city. And they named it that. Mississauga what? Baptist Church. City Baptist Church. Four decades later, we're surrounded by a million people and and arguably, because the borders are so fluid, we're we're part of this vast six million population-wide region of the GTA. That's why, you know, incidentally, if you've come here from somewhere else, and some of you have heard me say this to you, sort of privately one-on-one, and you say, why can't this church be a little bit more like the church that I came from? Because this is a church for the city. This is a church for the people of the city. Let's take a look as we move on. We say it's organic, we say it's urban. What did the ministry actually look like? It's an embodied mission. We'll take a look just at a few verses, verses 5 through 8. And I'll give you these characteristics of what the mission looks like. I call it embodied, and let's show you why. There are these four marks of the ministry that Philip did in the city. Word and deed, community, and racial recognition. Racial, sorry, reconciliation. I think you have those in your notes, don't you? Word and deed, community, and racial reconciliation. First of all, it says in a word, this is back in verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and there he proclaimed the Christ. Remember, Christ was not the surname of Jesus. It was a title. The Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Savior. Verse 12, it says he preached the good news, the gospel. So obviously the first thing it says about the ministry there is that it was a ministry of the word. There was content, there was teaching, there was a a body of truth here 
to be communicated. And Philip did that. But that word was fleshed out in all of these other ways. These other three things have to go with the teaching of the Word if it's going to be received. For example, not only was the ministry characterized by word, but also by deed. Look in verse 7. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many people, and many paralytic peoples and those who were crippled were healed. Now don't get distracted by the miraculous nature of the gifts. We'll get back to that in a minute. But notice there's two things that Philip did to help people. First, he helped them physically. There were those there who were paralyzed, who were sick, who were crippled. He helped them physically. Secondly, he helped them spiritually. He dealt with the problem of evil in their lives. You notice how, how nuanced, how, how really non-reductionistic this is. A, a reductionistic approach to, to human affairs uh, would say, first of all, uh, it's, it's all spiritual. Or it's all physical. Right? Well, first of all, this is not sort of flattened, spiritualized approach to the world that sometimes, even in the church, especially in church, we're, we're prone to attach ourselves to. Have you met people like this? Uh, everything gets spiritualized. You know, somebody zips in front of you into the parking space at Costco. Well, boy, I must have done something wrong for God to afflict me with this terrible evil. I, I cut myself on a paper and said, well, God has sent a, an evil spirit of scourging into my life. To, you know, everything gets spiritualized. Superstitious cultures associate everything with the devil. Now notice, the passage does say that there were responses to spiritual evil. But Philip doesn't look at being paralyzed or being crippled as actually being a state of oppression by evil. It's just a physical problem. And then he sees some problems as being spiritual. Some are physical, some are spiritual. Today we live, incidentally, in a materialistic culture that is every bit as reductionistic because it assumes that all of your problems are physiological. No matter what your problem is, it's never spiritual. It's always something that scientists can deal with. It's empirical, it's, it's materialistic. And that's every bit as naive or reductionistic as the opposite approach. It says everything is spiritual. The Gospel is neither. The Gospel says our problems are spiritual, our problems are physical and practical, and the church tries to address both. Now let's get back to the facts here. There were miracles. Miraculous healings of cripples and those who were oppressed. And miraculous exorcisms. And, and we say, well, of course, but does that mean that we have to, you know, and... I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. This was the very first Gentile church in the history of the world. It's the first breakthrough of a major barrier for the Gospel. The fact that the apostles were called down to witness it says that this is such a unique moment. This is one of the great leaps forward for the kingdom. And every great leap forward for the work of the kingdom has always been accompanied by an outpouring of miraculous deeds. It was true in the life of Jesus. It was true in the moment of Pentecost. It was true here at the, at the birth of the first non-Jewish church. Look in verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and they saw the signs, they listened to him. The function of miracles, then or now, is never to entertain, never to impress, but always to point. They were signs to point 
to a truth that needed to be received. And here's the point. In any city, we have to be all about the work of helping people with spiritual and physical needs because that points to the truth and the efficacy of the gospel. Words are always backed up by deeds. When the city sees us pouring ourselves out for physical and material needs of people, and when it sees people being transformed, and their lives physically being transformed, they're healthier, they look better, their shoulders aren't slumped anymore, there are smiles on their faces. When the city sees people transformed psychologically, their disposition changes. When it sees them transformed spiritually, then they'll listen to the words. Why would anybody, why should anybody listen to our words if we aren't a church that can show people changed lives? If we're not involved in pouring out the best of our energies in order to make a difference. So much so that the city, the city sees it and even if they don't believe in the truth behind it, they say, the city's blessed by their presence and we would be the poor if they disappeared. If it's not that, then all people will ever see as, a, as the work of the church is a kind of a power grab, an effort to increase our turf. And sometimes we get caught up in that, like religion is a turf war. Like this church or, or even, I guess more pointedly, this other religious organization have claimed turf that ought to be ours. How do we get the turf back? No. It's an embodied mission. The word is embodied by deed. Community is a mark of this. Notice that everyone who believes is baptized. See in verse 12 there? When they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Men and women. Gender is not a barrier here, though it was in much of the ancient world. They were baptized. It's important. And in order to drive the point home, there's this little case study with Simon. Simon's a magician, right? Simon hears and he says, I believe. And once he believes, he's baptized. Does that mean he's a Christian? Well, hold on. A little later, it says the apostles come down. When Simon saw the things they were doing, he says, Hey, I'm a magician. I got a lot in my arsenal, you know, my bag of tricks, but what you do, I can't do. Can I pay you? Can I pay you? I, I need to know the secret. Because again, he's a person of notoriety and influence in the world. And Peter says to him, this is verses 20 through 23, you have no part, no share in this ministry. Your heart is not right before God. You need to repent of this, to pray to the Lord. And perhaps... Perhaps he'll forgive you for having these kind of thoughts in your heart. For I can see that you are filled with bitterness and you are captive to sin. Now recognize, this is Peter looking at a baptized person saying, you're not right with God and you are still captive to sin. What does that mean? He's baptized. Baptism clearly doesn't automatically save you. Right? There's confusion about this in the church, especially in the Baptist church, right? Because it's right there in our name. If baptism automatically saved you, well, Sheldon and I, we would just go out there onto the curbside, hook up a fireman's hose, and Sheldon would hold them as they walked past, and I would douse them, and for the glory of God, we would wet the whole... But it doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way. 
But here's the balance. Here's the other side. Nobody just believes. You never see that happen in the book of Acts. People don't just believe. They believe and then they're baptized. What does that mean? Well, well today, at least for us in, in the West, and in the GTA, it kind of feels like we want it to be just me and Jesus. Just the, it's just the two of us. I don't need the church. It's, it's me and Jesus. It can be me and Jesus on the golf course. It can be me and Jesus on the cafe. It's just me and Jesus, and I don't need all that other luggage. I have needs. I have issues. I'll figure them all out. Me and Jesus. Now, I, I like the proximity of you and Jesus. Don't get me wrong about that. Baptism, though, is not private. It's public. I know that's the reason, for a lot of you, it's still a stumbling block. But it's intentionally public. It's not individual, it's communal. In baptism, you're making a promise. And you're not just making a promise to God, you're saying to the world, I'm going to live as a follower of Jesus, and I'm not the only one trying to do that. I'm surrounded by this community of people who make the same promise. And in baptism, you're celebrating that community, that group of people that are around you. And in that community, you're holding each other accountable to the promise that you're making. See, baptism doesn't save you automatically. You never see anyone in the book of Acts who has just an individual relationship. But they become part of a community. And lastly, sorry, I broke my glasses this week, so these are old glasses and I can't see. <laughs> lastly, the word is fleshed out through racial reconciliation. You may have heard, especially if you've come to the church over the past year or year and a half, some of the background for this, but if you've come, you know that, that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Uh, I mean, think, uh, I don't know, Serbians and Croatians. I mean, Palestinians and Jews today, they, they hated each other. And there's a whole lot of stories in the New Testament that are inexplicable unless you understand that historically there was this enormous hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. Otherwise, the good Samaritan it doesn't have the power that it does. Or Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. Jews were taught that even to be in, in any kind of close proximity to a Samaritan person defiled them, made them unclean. The Samaritans were the worst of the law. Therefore, for a Jewish man, Philip, not only to come to Samaria, but to preach and to teach, and most certainly because healing and exorcism involve physical contact, to put his hands on these people, to touch them and to love them and to invite them, for a Jewish man to do that must have been electrifying. The gospel brings down barriers. It makes people friends and invites them to be part of a community in a world where they may have been taught to loathe each other. So the word is fleshed out in deed and in community and in reconciliation. And what do you see as the final result? The result is that in any city where the gospel takes hold, the church becomes radically multicultural. And here's the fruit. Verse 8 says, there was great joy in the city. Notice it doesn't say there was great joy in the lives of believers. Of course, we assume that's going to happen. There was great joy in the city. 
Because something changed. Something of the, taint, the tension and the hatred began to dissolve. One of the Bible's, I think, most powerful verses that speaks of this idea is from Proverbs 11, verse 10. You might want to jot it in the, in the margins. Proverbs 11:10. When righteous people prosper, the whole city rejoices. When the gospel does what the gospel is meant to do, if we're growing, if good things are happening here, if we're prospering in such a way, the whole city looks in and says, listen, we may not believe what they believe, but I'm glad they're here. They're a blessing to the city. Word and deed, community, racial reconciliation. Now where does all this come from? And we're going we're gonna to end here. It's organic, it's urban, it's embodied. And it's a gospel mission. Look down in verse 12. It says, Philip preached the good news, the gospel. What is that? We use it so often. What is it? What's the gospel? We didn't read the whole story of Simon. We kind of stopped midstream there. But we read enough of it. I mentioned Simon responds to what he hears by saying, I believe. He gets baptized. And when he sees the apostles doing their thing, he says, listen... I want to do that. Here's some money. Who do I pay? Who do I pay? What does Peter say? This is the key. Peter answered, Your money will perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God. There it is. The gift of God. The gospel is a gift. It can't be earned. A gift that can't be achieved. Just a gift. A free gift of grace to undeserving people because of who Jesus was and and what Jesus did. That's why up again in verse 5, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria proclaimed the Christ. Full stop. Proclaimed the Christ. That was the message. That's the Gospel. Most other religions, including unfortunately Christianity, when it has lost its way, most other religions say you want salvation, you want deliverance from darkness, you want escape from guilt, you want a new life, you, you want a new world. Here's the things you need to do. That's not how the gospel starts. The gospel starts with Christ. That's it. Christ is the gospel, He is your salvation. Paul was able to say that when he wrote to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2. He says, when I first came to you, I was intent on knowing nothing except, surprise, Christ and Him crucified. Now, that's kind of an idiomatic expression, I realize. You you can't take it completely literally, because it's obvious that there are massive changes in behavior that do happen if you're a follower of Christ. Look at Philip. Something changed him so dramatically that he was willing to get beyond all of his prejudice and go to the Samaritans. Of course being Christian means a changed life and changed behavior. And of course there's more to the Bible than just the account of Jesus' crucifixion. But what Paul is trying to say is that that's the beginning. That's the starting point. That's the linchpin. It all hangs on that. In the very beginning, it's not about you at all. It's not about you getting your heart into some state of surrender in order to love Him more. No, it's, it's about Christ and what He does. We don't achieve our wisdom and our righteousness and, and our redemption and give it to God saying, here it is, now save me. 
Jesus is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. He's everything that that we want to be, that we ought to be. Religion and religiosity have always said, join us and do these things. You take on these things. And then it will happen for you. That's, that's just putting more burdens on, isn't it? Don't you feel like you carry enough weight? There are enough burdens in your life? The gospel, the, the, the authentic gospel, always takes burdens off. It's one of the signs. Listen, there, there are streams within the church, kind of more liberal streams of Christianity, that, that feel like they're trying to improve on it by saying... You don't have to believe the, the judgment of God or the, the literal resurrection or the virgin birth. All these things that are stumbling points maybe for, for modern people. God is pleased with us if we're just inclusive and working hard for a better world. Doesn't that feel like a burden coming back on? Working for a better world, striving to be inclusive, then God is pleased with me. It's a burden. Same time there are there are conservative types who say, listen, we live in a terrible culture. And in order to survive, we're just going to raise the walls up. We're going to try to bring people inside. And when they come inside, we're going to give them the rules, lots of rules. You're not a Christian unless you do these things. And we're happy to tell you when you've strayed across the boundaries. More burden. Look, we do strive to follow Jesus' teachings and God's law. We do care about the world. And we do care about inclusivity. But in the beginning, the burdens come off. That's the gospel. If you want the incredible burden to come off, if you want the freedom, it starts, it starts with surgery. Deep, deep surgery. I was reading about the story, we'll end here, of uh, Nathan Cole. Nathan Cole is an 18th century farmer. I figured I had to use something rural in this sermon. From Middlebury, Connecticut. He wrote a historic document about, about how he came to faith listening to the great preacher George Whitfield. He said that after hearing him preach, he gave me a heart that felt deeply wounded. Through the blessing of God, the old foundations of my life were broken up. I saw that my own striving for righteousness could not save me. That's the surgery. That broken up feeling inside. And then after that, what comes? How many of you know Charles Wesley's beautiful hymn? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, and I, my heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and followed Thee. That becomes, if you are a Christian, the background music for your whole life. The burdens are off. Repent, that's what Peter said to Simon. You think you can purchase or earn the gift of God. You can't. But you can receive it. When you do, the burdens all come off. That's the thing that the apostles came down to Samaria to make sure 
that they had right. Once you understand that, it becomes the backdrop for the rest of your life. And you become a woman or a man on mission. We pray for you and for I, for all of us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that there was and there will be joy in this city, here in the GTA, because of the Gospel. We pray that You would help us to embody it in significant ways in our own city. We pray that in all the great cities of the world, that You can raise up people who do the same thing. We ask that all the power that we have to do these things would come from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in His name. Amen.